If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 24, let's pray before we come to the word. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that uh, beginning with Moses, you directed men of God to write down your words. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you governed their hearts and minds so that what they wrote was their words, their language, their syntax, their character and, and personality comes through, and yet it is purely your word. We thank you that the scriptures are inerrant, that they are infallible, and that they are sufficient. The Apostle Peter said that you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. All the content that we need is found in your word, and the power comes from your spirit. So, Lord, we ask that as we come to, to study and to think and to read and to meditate, that you would teach us, that you would encourage the weak hands, encourage our faith and strengthen us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, for, for those visiting, I've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew for coming on four years now. Um, sometimes I preach a verse at a time. Sometimes I preach as many as five or six verses at a time. It just depends on what's there. So to give you a little bit of the setting, Matthew chapter four, 24 and 25 is called the Olivet Discourse. It's happening two days before Jesus' crucifixion. It is uh, Passion Week. It's Wednesday afternoon, probably late afternoon on Passion Week. We know from chapter 26 that he spent Wednesday night in, in Bethany, and they've stopped between the, the temple where he had taught in the morning on their way to Bethany in the, the Mount of Olives, probably just to catch their breath. I mean, you had to walk down a fair distance and then back up the Mount of Olives and you'd stop at the top in the shade to catch your breath. It makes sense. And his disciples asked him what the signs of his coming would be. They actually began by asking, when are you coming? And, and he answers that in verse 36, which we're going to address next week. But in verse 36, he says, that's none of your business. That's my, my paraphrase of that. But they asked him, what will be the signs of your coming and what will be the signs of the, the end of the age? And then uh, chapter 24 and 25, he answers that question. Some of what he gives are, are what the signs are. Some of what he gives have to do with the judgment that is to come. And half of these verses, about half, have to do with our readiness for him to come. He wants his people to be ready. He begins by saying to them, Early in chapter 24, see to it that you are not deceived. See that you are not alarmed. He declines the, he describes the normal decline of the world into wars and rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes, kingdom and nations rising up against one another. He says that's not the end, that's just the beginning of birth pangs. He says that there will be tribulation against his people, and then he, he grants. Uh, he gives some uh, some significant signs that will immediately precede his coming. 
the abomination of desolation, great tribulation, uh, increased rumors of, of his return somewhere in the wilderness or somewhere in the inner city. Jesus is here. He's just in hiding. He's concealed himself. And then a, a rapid, incredible increase of false prophets. As he, as he goes through these, through these things, he, he keeps emphasizing our need to be diligent and watchful. So he says, see to it that you are not deceived. See to it that you are not alarmed. He says, therefore, when you see, you need to be watchful. He, he says in Matthew 24, 23, if anyone says here or there is the Christ, don't believe him. If they say, verse 26, he's in the wilderness, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them. He's giving us such clarity that we can identify false teachings and lies and simply dismiss them without ever having to investigate. And he says in verse 25, behold, I have told you in advance. He wants us to know. He wants us to know. He was determined to give his disciples sufficient information that they could face the rest of their lives. And he's, he's given us the same information that we can face our lives with the certainty of what it will be like when he comes and, and what it will be like when he's not coming. He wants us to learn and he wants us to know. Let's look at verse 32 to verse 35. Jesus says, now learn the parable of the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, the signs that he's mentioned, recognize that the son of man is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we, we begin with this, this command from the Lord to learn and know. Two commands. Learn is a command, and recognize is the word know. It's the word know. Learn and know. I would, con I would just condense verse 32 and 33. Learn so that you know. Now, this is really going to sound silly, and I apologize for that, but I don't apologize for it because sometimes we just need things to be clear. If you won't learn, you won't know. We have to learn first. Then we can know. Then we can have certainty. If we will not learn, we will not know. I mean, I, that's so basic that it's axiomatic. We don't even have to say it. And yet we do regarding these things especially. So what are we to learn? He gives us the parable of the fig tree. The parable of the fig tree. And he simply draws from agriculture and he says, you all recognize that as winter proceeds, the fig tree is bare like all trees are bare. You just see the branches silhouetted against the sky, but then the branches become tender, kind of like when we're driving around here in the springtime and we see buds on the trees. We're from Southern California. It's just remarkable to me that you can drive at six, you know, speed limit, 65 miles an hour down the road and look at trees and see the buds. 
That's that branch becoming tender. That's the sap flowing in the branch and the life flowing in the branch. And then the leaves on the fig tree, before you, you get fruit, you get leaves. You get the leaves coming out. And he says, when you see the branches becoming tender, when you see the leaves there, you know that summer is near. Now, he's not saying when you see the branches become tender and you see the leaves, that day is the first day of summer. He doesn't say that. He says near. And in exactly the same way, he says, when you see all these things, know recognizes is what the, the legacy standard, the new, the new American standard says. The word is know, recognize, know that the Son of Man is near, right at the door. So what are we to learn? What are the signs? Four things. Verse 15, or verse 15 the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation, I explained it several weeks ago as when, when we were there it's the man who comes dressed in abomination, clothed in abomination, as Christians are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the one who comes clothed with Satan, clothed with unrighteousness. And he sets himself up as God within the holy place. When you see that, and when you see the great tribulation, when you see the, the, the judgment of God being poured out on earth as we see in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18. And when you see the violence of the Antichrist toward the people of God, when you see the great tribulation, that's a sign. And when you see various rumors of Christ's return. Now, this isn't rumors of spiritual leaders and forces. This is people saying Jesus has come back. He's in the wilderness or he's in the inner rooms. And I think the idea is he's here, he's quiet, he's concealing himself, maybe until you're worthy. And we've already seen that's not how he comes back. He doesn't sneak back. He doesn't come back subtly. And there's a, a massive increase in the number of false prophets. Jesus won't come back again until these signs have come to pass. And when they come to pass, the second coming is near. It's right around the corner. It doesn't mean it's the day that somebody looks at that and says, all these signs have been fulfilled. But, he, but he's near. He's right there. Every Christian, not just the 12 disciples, but every Christian through history who has the scriptures, you and me, we've been given the opportunity to learn what signs precede the second coming so that we know with certainty when he is near. And maybe more important, I'll explain that, but maybe more important, know with certainty that he's not near. Why would it be, be more important to know with certainty that he's not near? Because for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has not returned. He's coming. But there have been far more generations that have not seen his second coming than will see his second coming. It's those generations who are subject to deception. It's those generations that can be easily fooled because we want him to come back. As I was thinking about uh, deceptive predictions of Christ's return, 
I realized that in the middle of the first century, we see the first one, and there may have been others before this that are not recorded. Second Thessalonians chapter two, Paul says this. Now we ask you brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by a spirit or a word or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Do not be deceived and don't be alarmed. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it has not come, the day of the Lord has not come until the apostasy comes first. In Matthew 24, 12, Jesus says the love of many will grow cold. It's not the love of people for themselves. It's the, the love of his people for him, of those who claim to be his people. The great apostasy. And the, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the sanctuary of God, exhibiting himself as being God. That's the abomination of desolation. He's talking about the Antichrist, who doesn't just set up and, set up and say, I'm Jesus. He stands up and says, I'm the fulfillment of Buddha. I'm the angel Moroni. I'm the fulfillment of all the Hindu scriptures. I'm the Egyptian god Ra. I'm Allah. He sets himself above every so-called god. But he does so in the temple of God in Jerusalem. Well, the Thessalonians had been hearing rumors that the day of the Lord had already come and they had missed it. You can imagine that's a depressing thought. We had a, a couple in our church in California have told this story before, but some of you haven't heard it. This man became convinced that Jesus was going to return at the Feast of Tabernacles. He had heard a sermon by a, a Messianic Jewish pastor named Zola Levitt, and he had decided that Zola Levitt had, had said, wouldn't it be wonderful if when Jesus came back, it was at the Feast of Tabernacles? Wouldn't it be wonderful if this man in our church had decided he is coming back at the Feast of Tabernacles? So Feast of Tabernacles is typically in the fall, October-ish. And so we began seeing a pattern. And around August, this guy would, would become increasingly adrenaline-filled. He would come in on Sunday morning and he would be twitching he was so excited. And would, would anybody like to guess whether Jesus came back? So the Feast of Tabernacles would come and go, and he would crash. He would just crash. It'd be the next spring before he just kind of emerged again. And then he'd start the same pattern. See, he wasn't deceived by Zola Levitt because Zola didn't say it would be the Feast of Tabernacles, and he didn't say it would be this Feast of Tabernacles. But this man had decided that deception was terribly ruinous for him. Paul wrote these words around 51 or 52 AD. So going back for the last almost 2,000 years, the church has been hearing false predictions of the Lord's return. Some of those predictions have been from 
notably false teachers, Pope Sylvester II, Charles Taze Russell, Joseph Smith, the Reverend Sung Myung Moon, predicted Jesus' return. They, they got it wrong. Some have been people that we never associate with religion. Botticelli the painter, Christopher Columbus, Charles Manson predicted Jesus' return. They got it wrong. Some were, are, are known for their fascination with the end times. Pat Robertson and Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. LaHaye and Jenkins wrote the Left Behind series. And at a point, they foolishly predicted a date when Jesus would return. And then they recanted that before that date came. But they were fools to have made it in the first place. And others have been people that we just never would expect. Martin Luther. Cotton Mather, who was one of the, the early Puritan guys in, in Boston, in New England, during the colonies. Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel. It's still going on. It's still going on. If you just Google predictions of the second coming of Christ, you'll see that there are people who are saying it's going to be in two years. Well, Jesus says, I want you to learn and know with certainty what the signs are so that you know when I am not near and you know when I am near. He's doing this, doing that so that we can be sure that we're not being deceived and so that we can be free of fear. The Thessalonians allowed themselves to be deceived and it caused them this stomach-churning anxiety and alarm. The end times are mysterious in a sense. We don't know when exactly they'll begin. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. Book of Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 18 describes a seven-year period of time. That's not very much text to describe seven years. And so they have a very mysterious feeling to us. But at the same time, it's not a mystery. Jesus tells us what's going to happen. The book of Revelation tells us what's going to happen during the tribulation period. And as the Lord comes back, Jesus addressed wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against kingdom, kingdom rising against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, the kinds of events that cause uncertainty and distress that, that rock us. And Jesus says, yeah, don't worry about that. That's, that's just this nasty old world being what it is. But it's not the end. It's just the beginning of birth pangs. I want to give a little bit of a, of a parenthesis because I think that we'd, we, we would be wise to understand the devil's strategy because the devil's strategy plays into this. And it really comes down to two aims. He, he's just got two goals. He wants to set God against man. And he wants to set man against God. How does the devil set God against man? By tempting us to sin. God says that the wages of sin is death. That's not because sin brings a natural result of death. It's because sin is answered by the judgment of God with death. 
So this is, I'm I'm guessing, I'm speculating here, I'm guessing a little bit here, but this is what I think the devil's thinking. I think the devil is thinking, God has created these creatures in his own image. They're clearly his favorites. He's clearly the most pleased with them. If I can get him to destroy the creatures made in his image, it's almost like getting him to destroy himself. And God gave the devil the way to do it, didn't he? He took Adam, he made him, and he put him in the garden, and he said, here, you can eat of everything, but not that tree. The day you eat of that tree, you'll die. Not because the fruit's poisonous, but by the judgment of God. And so Satan comes to Eve, and Eve goes to Adam, and he deceives Eve, and Adam makes the choice to sin, and they die. They die under the judgment of God, and God still punishes sin with death, and the devil still tempts people to sin so that God is put in the position of destroying them. He says, I'm going to set God against man by persuading man to sin so that God who is just has to judge. The devil also wants to set man against God. How does he do that? Well, he convinces man that God is untrustworthy, that God is unreliable. So God, again, tells Adam, in the day you eat of it, you'll die. The devil comes to Eve and he says, don't you have anything to eat? And she says, oh, we can eat everything. But that tree, we can't eat it or touch it or we'll die. And what does Satan say? Yeah, you're really smart to stay away from that. That's a good call. He says, you won't die. God's jealous. What is he doing? He's setting her against her creator. He's trying to persuade her that her father is her competitor and enemy. He created you and he put you here to rob you of pleasure and happiness. And she bought it. Adam didn't. He wasn't deceived, but he went that way anyway. We see with the devil's temptation of Jesus a good example of his approach. Of his approach. You're hungry? God isn't providing for you? Satisfy your own needs. Make God prove his love for you. Jump off and make him catch you. God's plan for you is too hard. It involves too much suffering and too much difficulty. Take the easy way. Doesn't he come at us with that? Satisfy your own needs. It's not happening fast enough. It's not happening on your schedule. It's not happening in the way you want it. Take control of your life. Do you doubt the love of God for you? Make him prove it. Oh, but he's already proved it. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's plan for your life is too hard. It's too uncertain. You can't see what's, what's around the corner, what's over the horizon. Take the easy way. The devil wants you to sin 
so that you earn God's judgment. He wants you to be disappointed in God so that you abandon him. And it's a pretty effective plan, at least in terms of getting people to abandon the Lord. I want to tell you something about Satan. Revelation 12.9 calls him the great dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. There is no deception he will not try with you. There is nothing in your life he won't exploit to conquer you. There is no pain in your life that he will leave mercifully untouched. There is no loss that you have suffered that Satan will not manipulate for his own purposes. He will stop at nothing to destroy you. We're told about the Lord Jesus that he would not break a bruised reed and he would not quench smoking flax. My understanding of that, the meaning of that is that Jesus doesn't come to human beings who are broken and shattered and filled with guilt and broken by life and finish the destruction. He comes to heal and he comes to restore those who trust him. The devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. So Jesus' words to his disciples 2,000 years ago are deeply meaningful and necessary for us today. If we are willing to learn, that is, if we are willing to submit to his word and wisdom, if we are willing to know with certainty, that is, if we are willing to trust him, then we can be protected against deception. We can be protected against the enemy. Jesus reminds his disciples that his words are eternal. Verses 34 and 35, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I give you a little bit of how the sausage is made background and into what it's like to be a pastor and a theologian. The words this generation have caused more fights in the church than probably any other two words in the Bible. There's so much disagreement about what this generation means. I believe that the context makes it really clear that the generation that sees the signs will see the Lord. It's just the simplest, most straightforward way to understand it. They're going to see the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation. They'll see the signs of the rumors of his secret return, the increase of false prophets. And then they'll witness the darkening of the sun and the moon and the falling of the stars and the powers of heaven being shaken and the sign of the son of man in the sky and the morning of the nations, and then Jesus returning like a bolt of lightning. All these signs must take place. Jesus' emphasis in these verses is not on the generation, it's on his word. Truly I say to you. Or, more fully, truly, truly, I say to you, which is amen, amen, I say to you. That word truly is the Greek word amen. Yes, certainly, without question, I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will not pass away. That reminds me of Matthew 5.18. Jesus says there, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he's saying that the law of God, the word of God, and his words are the same. They have the same eternal nature. They have the same power. So what we have here is eternal words being spoken by the eternal word. We love to hear ourselves talk. We, we love storytelling. We love songwriting. We love play acting. We love book writing. We love movie making. We love stories. Stories go back to Adam and Eve sitting around with Cain and Abel, telling them about the garden and the serpent and the fruit and what they lost. We love stories. We love stories. But God never talks just to hear himself talk. He speaks with purpose. He speaks to enact his will. He speaks to exercise his power. God is spirit. He doesn't have physical form. If he did have physical form, here's something for you to ponder in the late, late hours of the night. If God did have physical form, he would occupy an infinite amount of space and there would be room for nothing else. Because God is infinite. God is spirit. And he speaks to do. His word is how he works. He doesn't make things with physical hands. He didn't form the universe with physical hands. He spoke it into existence because that word that he speaks is his power being expressed. When we say that Jesus is the eternal word, we don't mean that Jesus is the one who tells us about God. We mean that Jesus is the full perfect expression of all that God is. Jesus is as though God the Father spoke all that he is. That's Jesus. So when Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, he doesn't simply mean that they'll be remembered forever. He means that his words maintain their power and authority for all eternity. He holds up all things by the, upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3 says. He doesn't have to physically hold things together. His word is sufficient. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel, which is the word of God to sinners, is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul doesn't say the gospel tells us about God's power or reveals God's power. He says it is God's power for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those, those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Jesus has spoken to us regarding the last days. He said to his disciples, learn so that you know. Learn what the signs are of the second coming so that you know when that second coming is near. And just as important, you know when it's not near, so that you can see to it that no one deceives you. And you can see that you are not alarmed by anything. As we bring this home then, 
Jesus has given us his word so that we may learn and know with confidence. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. And Isaiah, God is speaking to the nation Israel who has been an idolatrous nation for a long time. And he says to them in Isaiah 118, come, let us reason together. Let us think together. He wants us to think. He wants us to exercise our minds, but he wants us to think and exercise our minds according to what he has revealed, according to what is true, not according to our own imaginations. In order for his word to do in us what he commands, we must learn. That means reading, studying, meditating on his word, being taught by the, taught his word by reliable teaching it, teachers. It means we never, ever take somebody's word for it. You must never take what I say at face value, ever. Why would you do that? You go to scripture and you test all things by scripture. I hope to God that I never misspeak or misteach his word, but you can't trust I won't. You can only trust his word. So what if somebody tells you Jesus has secretly returned and he's in the wilderness and he'll, he's only revealing himself to those who are worthy? They're lying. It's just easy. See, you don't have to be deceived or afraid. Maybe they're right. No, they're not right. Well, maybe I missed it. No, you didn't miss it. What if it's a teacher who's very famous and they're on TV and on radio and on the internet and they've written books? They're wrong. And I just have to say this. They're lying. They're lying. If you meet a brand new believer, somebody who's been a Christian for a year or two, and they come up with this, I would say they're mistaken. They don't understand. But somebody who stands up and says, I am a teacher of the word of God is responsible for what it says. And when they get it wrong on something that's so clear, they're not just mistaken, they're deceiving. Why they do that, I don't know. What if it's somebody you really know and respect? What if it's your mom? What if it's your brother? What if it's your best friend? Oh, well, that's different. No, it's not. They're lying. They're lying. Does that make, it, that make them an, a, an instrument of the enemy? It might. At the very least, they're deceived. What's their hope then? Their hope is that you know the truth. And you can lovingly, gently say, no, that's not right. This is what Jesus says. Let's listen to him. The devil has set up millions, hundreds of millions for deception. The, the modern charismatic movement says New Testament prophets are different than Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets had to be right every single time. New Testament prophets can be wrong most of the time and still be legitimate prophets. It's absurd. It's utterly contrary to scripture. It's a lie. My nasty, fleshly, speculative side wants to wonder why they would tell that lie. We'll just leave that in the Lord's hands. I know of nothing more powerful than the word of God. The only way that you and I can protect ourselves against deception is to know the word of God and to rest on it, to trust it, 
to know it so confidently, so certainly that when somebody tells us a lie, we can say, no, that's not true. But I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk about that. Let's look together at what the Lord says in his word. That's how we have assurance. That's how we have peace. That's how we have contentment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you that you have sealed it. We thank you that it is never wrong. We are often wrong. We must be teachable and soft and submitted to your word. But your word carries your very authority. You said to David in 2 Samuel that he despised your word and that was the same as despising you. Lord, give us the highest regard for the scriptures. God breathed, brought about because the Holy Spirit moved godly men. Help us to rest our faith and our confidence on what you have said. That we may learn and that we may know with certainty so that we are not deceived and that we are not alarmed. We thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.